Hey everyone, and welcome to the 48th edition of Digital Foundry Direct Weekly, the show which is, as the name suggests, a weekly assessment of the news in gaming technology. And joining me to discuss it, first of all, John Linneman. Hey Rich, we're back again. So there's a lot to talk about, so that's good. Let's do it. Seemingly there is. The chat never ends. And helping me with that chat, Alex Batalia. Hey there, Rich. Hey there, John. A uh, bit of a dark morning here in Berlin, hopefully with some brighter news on the way, though. Okay. Thanks for that. Thanks for that update from Berlin. Uh, but let's begin with our first news topic. Okay, so this week the embargo lifted on uh, the Valve Steam Deck. We now have firm hardware reviews from the likes of Gamers Nexus and Linus Tech Tips. And um, yeah, another outlet, Forks, I believe. Uh, they also produce some content. Um, and uh, yeah, lots to talk about here. Uh, but first of all, there's a question from AC Luda uh, from the DF Supporter Program. Did you receive a Steam Deck and what are your initial anecdotal impressions? Uh, so we kind of have to lay some ground rules here, first of all, which is to say that uh, I have re received a Steam Deck. It's literally down here. Uh, unfortunately, due to a bizarre embargo situation i can't actually show you the unit and i can't share any impressions of the unit despite gamers nexus and uh, linus tech tips etc literally showing you how it works so there's this kind of bizarre situation going on here uh, but we can obviously talk about the content that's gone out and continues to go out <laughs> because they're not finished they've got more to share um so I guess there's a lot to, to wade through here. I'm going to go to you, Alex, first, as this is primarily a PC story, right? Yeah, so I guess um, what we get, uh, specifically looking at the Gamers Nexus uh, results, are a lot of benchmarks uh, regarding the relative power of the system when playing games at, uh, I would say, pretty good settings at the native resolution of the panel, or at least a little bit below native resolution of the panel if it doesn't support 16 by 10. And we're actually seeing results that I think, in comparison to what you um, hypothesized, Rich, before in your uh, Steam Deck video, uh, kind of covering it using the APU of the time, that it is actually performing quite a bit better than we might have even expected uh, in a number of ways across the wealth of AAA titles. And that may uh, reflect uh, on other aspects of the system uh, that I'm pretty sure we'll also be covering in great detail when the time comes, and that is namely battery life. Uh, the uh, battery life when running full tilt uh, on like a, a big game, uh, you know, max settings, just unlocking the frame rate, which is something we'll also talk about in a second here. Uh, it seems to be pretty low. Uh, lower than uh, maybe what Valve was letting onto, I think is about one hour and a half uh, in terms of time when running the thing full tilt. This is a mobile device primarily. Um, I don't know how people in the audience feel about one and a half hours of gaming time on the go uh, when running full tilt, but I think that's not necessarily the usage case that everybody wants. So I think, um, yes, the, the benchmarks are out there. They're showing that the SoC it's a very powerful little thing, but at the same time, it, I think a lot of the uh, Steam Deck's appeal and what I'm going to probably end up having to do with optimized settings for this thing is also be considering battery life to a certain degree. Uh, so it is, it, is a, it is a little PC device, and unfortunately, with the way these reviews paint it, 
the, the user choice of the settings and the frame rate capping and all these things will have a rather large impact on one, the user experience, and two, the battery life. Uh, so that's kind of what I have gotten out of the reviews so far. But I think we're going to also, when we do this, we're going to try and have a slightly different angle on it than what we already see out there. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, one thing I want to say about the, um, the one and a half hour thing on the Gamers Nexus uh, review there is that they were running the game unlocked um, and then they got uh, something like two hours of battery life by running at um, with VSync on. So effectively putting a 60 FPS cap onto that particular experience, thus reducing the power draw, thus increasing battery life. However, there are going to be games that are running under 60 frames per second that will also be pushing the SoC to its limit. And those games um, will also logically have a one and a half hour battery life because, you know, the SOC is hitting, presumably hitting its um, power limit, you know, um, and that is rather high based, you know, uh, based on the Gamers Nexus results. So the option to cap frame rates at 30 FPS is going to be crucial for those high end games to get decent battery life, in my opinion. And, um, and again, you know, you may wish to be using um, lower settings with the frame rate cap in order to get even more battery life. As you say, Alex, optimize settings here uh, for this. It may mean something else. Yeah. Based on the gamers Nexus uh, results could mean something very, very different indeed compared to what we're doing on the desktop uh, side of things. Uh, but um, obviously it's happy days if you just want to plug in uh, the power adapter at the top and just run flat out. But John, this would necessitate cord draping it would <laughs> which is uh <laughs> not your favorite thing the cord drape yeah cord we, we try to avoid cord draping whenever possible but sometimes there's just nothing you can do <laughs> i'm curious about your results here about your impressions here john because um uh, obviously alex is approaching this from the perspective of a pc user a high-end pc user and actually, if we look at the Linus and, 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 and the Gamers Nexus uh, coverage, even the Forks stuff, there's nobody actually looking at this with a non-PC perspective, really. Uh, so I'm curious as to your uh, takeaways from the coverage so far. Well, I think what's really interesting here is it really shines a light on the challenges that designers have to deal with when creating a, a mobile platform, right? Battery life is super important here and that explains a lot of the decisions about why say switch games are the way they are but the thing that i really took away from this actually is how it stacks up to the other comparable competition if you can call it that stuff like the aya neo and whatever i was actually really surprised at how much of a leap the steam deck is over those devices in that it actually does have superior battery life but it also has superior performance so I feel like Valve has tapped into sort of the best possible solution given the state of the art right now, given battery technology right now, and have produced something that kind of, like, this is essentially just about the best you could do, I'd imagine. Um, but it does put a lot of, I guess, uh, pressure, if you will, on the owner to be able to handle this well. And I'll be curious to see how Valve's own interface and sort of UI helps with this and whether it's you know it has systems in place and how games are designed with the steam deck in mind going forward like 
if you're creating a new PC game, I feel like making a Steam Deck preset makes a ton of sense now. Specifically, you know, both in terms of uh, visual settings, resolution settings, but also things like the frame rate limiter. Like, I could see a case for wanting to cap the frame rate at 30 FPS here, for sure. And I think Valve has something like that in the works, a system level feature. Yeah, that's been announced. And um, that was announced many, many months ago. And, uh, you know, I just had to put a a comment on the tweet saying, please, if you're going to do 30 FPS, get frame pacing correct. And uh, I guess we'll have to wait and to see to see whether that has actually happened or not. But yeah, that's kind of crucial, I think. On the Switch, it's a closed platform, but you already see the modding scene is huge there, right? Lots of people unlocking games, doing things to play with the games, to change settings to suit their needs. We even saw this on like PS Vita, where you could fix some of the low resolution issues in certain games. And I feel like the Steam Deck now opens the door for this officially, which is really interesting. But it's definitely going to be a thing where it has to take into account the user that might buy this and just want to use it as a handheld and get those things right without needing to jump through those hoops. Because I can imagine some people being frustrated when they play a new game on the Steam Deck and they're getting only an hour and a half. When in reality, they could probably double that with the right settings. Yeah, I think um, the concept of having curated uh, presets from developers for the Steam Deck is actually a really good idea. But I think there has to be some level of um, device recognition within the software because I don't really want to see those uh, settings cropping up on you know my 3090 powered PC. It's not really relevant. It just adds further friction to the experience. Um, but if the if the um, the software can say, hey, I'm running on a Steam Deck, this is the kind of optimal settings that we would suggest automatically put them in place from boot but still allow the user the ability to change them if they want i think that is the way forward i'm just wondering whether we're we're asking too much here um my sort of uh, take on the gamers nexus stuff in particular is that um steve is second to none in putting a hardware design through its paces and uh it looks like apart from i think one slightly hot memory chip Looks like the device got a clean bill of health, if not an actual recommendation from Steve Burke, which is a rare thing indeed. Yeah, that is rare. <laughs> so you know, um, I've got no problems at all with the uh, with the uh, design of the, of the of the hardware. If Steve says it's it's up to snuff, right? Uh, one thing which did worry me though on the Linus video is they actually ran um, uh, display calibration on the uh, on the screen. And it came up with like, you know, 63% of RGB coverage, uh, which was actually worse than all of the competing screens, worse than the Nintendo Switch, which actually leads us on to a Steam Deck question we received from DF supporter FlowG. Do you think the display cost is the only reason for the Steam Deck not having VRR? Do you believe there's a chance we will get a revision with VRR anytime soon? It seems like a perfect fit for the device. And the lack of VRR is the only reason why I probably won't buy a Steam Deck at launch. I'd love to hear your opinion on this. Well, here's the thing, right? The screen is an ever-present aspect of this of this deck design. You've got to be looking at it all the time while you game. It's got to be crucial. It's crucial to the experience. So I've got to admit those display calibration results from Linus didn't give me a bit of a double take didn't seem to be in line with the quality of the rest of the design. I guess it's something we'll need to verify on our 
unit. Um, any thoughts on that, John? Because you're big on screens. I mean, this was always my concern from the beginning, and it seemed like a cost-cutting measure. So I think the resolution choice is actually pretty savvy. I don't think we need to go much beyond that, and that is also a battery lifesaver uh, and a setting saver. The thing about LCDs is you want to match the pixel resolution to the output of the game. Upscaling sucks, usually. Um, but I, I haven't seen this with my own eyes, and those results are a little bit alarming, I have to admit. And that has me wondering if this is just going to be uh, one of those mid-tier Android tablet quality LCDs that you see floating around. I mean, like, Linus was like, oh yeah, and the black levels look pretty good, and then they show, like, an image of it. And as someone that films screens, I know how difficult it is to truly represent that with a camera, but it didn't look that black to me. So There was yeah. also a tweet comparing the Switch OLED screen running the same content to the Steam Deck, and the Steam Deck clearly wasn't in the same league. No, I mean, uh, there's zero question in my mind that the Steam Deck is not going to be able to match that screen. And OLED, no. Yeah, there's just no way. I'm split on this choice because I understand the need to get the cost down. But like you say, Rich, you're looking at the screen the whole time. Like, that's without the screen, what is the Steam Deck? Like, it's such a central, central point of the device. Uh, but I don't know where else they could cut costs and still deliver the, the thing that they have. So I... I have to reserve judgment until I see it for myself. I do think VRR and such like that was left out specifically, most likely because of cost. And that's probably also why we didn't see a higher refresh rate panel as well, both cost and battery. Um, so it really seems like it was carefully selected with all of these things in mind, and that's just kind of what they went with. But I'm a little surprised because I feel like sourcing a decent screen these days seems to be less difficult. I don't know, based on just what we see in other devices out there. So, Well, yeah, it does kind of... I mean, the reason this has become a discussion point is because based on the Gamers Nexus coverage, there's there's little else that can be criticised <laughs> with the device. I mean, it passes all of the tests. The size, I got to admit. Like, seeing the actual comparison shots, it really put it into perspective. And it's... I mean, I know you can't say anything yet, but to me, it looks enormous like really big <laughs> in a way that's like uh is it even portable at this point right yeah linus did his uh sticking it in his back pocket test <laughs> yeah. which wow. i thought was quite amusing and he, he had trouble it did fit <laughs> it got it i mean the jorts for that yeah. when, when you see it compared to like the wii u gamepad and it's bigger you're just like oh my <laughs> i don't even know if i've ever seen a wii u gamepad in person it's honestly. very big <laughs> You, you wouldn't like it, Alex. No, it's, it's, <laughs> it's so. pretty bad. Um, there's actually a Steam Deck question from Anton Kirilenko, which you may wish to answer, uh, Alex. Uh, Hi, DF. What do you think about Steam Deck having system-level FSR so that the games don't actually have to support it? What prevents NVIDIA from injecting DLSS on a driver level so that every game could potentially have it? I think uh, it is really great for the Steam Deck for sure, especially in light of uh, the battery life concerns we were just talking about now. Uh, and also the fact that uh, FSR does have rather uh, visual, impactful visual uh, differences uh, when you use it. I think, uh, but the size of the screen that you're looking at there in your hands and its apparent resolution, I think actually uh, FSR is a great, you know, it's going to, its effects are going to be minimized. The negative effects of using FSR are going to be minimized. Um, 
so uh, so I think that's a positive thing. Um, but why does what prevents NVIDIA from injecting DLSS? Well, uh, FSR and DLSS are very different. And I think this is something I tried to bring across in my FSR uh, video back then was that, you know, FSR is a quote unquote simple um, full screen uh, dumb spatial upscaler. image pass. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's quote unquote dumb upscaling. It doesn't actually need that much information to work properly. DLSS, on the other hand, requires very specific uh, engine integration and a lot of work from the developer. It's a lot less work than other things, but it's still a lot of work from the developer to get it working right and have it look right. Uh, so it cannot be a driver level thing. Uh, maybe in some weird distant future with machine learning it could be, I don't know, but currently it can definitely not be. So uh, it's, it trades quality, DLSS it has a higher quality, but it requires more integration time. Yeah, I mean, I've not tested FSR on the Steam Deck, but I suspect that it's simply going to be rescaling the whole image, uh, including HUD elements and stuff. So it's not uh, optimal compared to an integrated FSR solution. Uh, but it's just like a fallback, right? In the original FSR comments in the code, didn't it sort of indicate that this was a mobile uh, targeting solution in the first place? So I kind it of feel like it's for right lower end GPUs. Yeah, so it's like right at home on the on the Steam Deck. It's yeah. pretty much made for this type of situation. Yeah, I think the point that um, you made, Alex, which we should probably sort of emphasize, is that the the level of critique changes according to the use case, right? So using FSR on a 4K display or a 1080p display that's actually quite large and literally in your face um, invites a different level of critique to a smaller screen on a much lower resolution where the actual perception of the quality impact is very, very different. So this is why it's actually a pretty good feature to have in there, I think. But, you know, until we test it to see, to see what level of uh, improvement we get, and the impact to image quality just remains to be seen, I guess. But it's certainly a nice, cute feature to have. And um, uh, I'm going to be interested to see what the actual implementa implementation uh, works out like there. Um, there's not really, I mean, here's the thing. My takeaway from all of this coverage is that um, I know now that the hardware design is sound, right? That so Valve has put a lot of effort into the design and uh, screen. Um, issues aside, it's all looking really, really good. Uh, we've got some benchmarks, uh, which also look really good compared to competing devices. Um, but I still don't really know how well this thing plays, plays games. That's, that was my takeaway from it, which is, you know, actual use case scenario. How am I going to use this thing? How well is it going to play these games? And uh, I guess that's really where we come in. Uh, to, to take a look at the actual way that games are going to be used, the actual limitations. So on the one hand, it was slightly uh, depressing to see that uh, certain outlets were given access to the machine way ahead of other outlets, when usually there is a, a playing field. But on the flip side, I'd say that the coverage that came out of it was, was pretty good and focused, which is probably what Valve wanted. Uh, but on the flip side, there's still a huge amount of stuff to actually discuss here. Uh, games that people really want to play. I mean, the number one question on the Discord is basically boils down to this. Is this a portable PlayStation? Can I run my console games that I can't run on the Switch on the Steam Deck? And certainly the evidence suggested so far looks pretty, pretty positive there, right? 
Um, we saw Forza Horizon 5 being played. Linus seemed to have issues with stutter there. I don't know what you thought about that, um, Alex, because the other video that from Forks didn't seem to have that problem, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, this is such weird territory because there's a translation layer going on in there. Um, I've really never played around with those too much. So maybe there could be inconsistencies. But also, um, I know for a fact, for example, Forza Horizon, people talk about this rather often, but Forza Horizon, if you play online, it can actually induce stutter uh, due to internet connection issues. Um, uh, so that is something that happens. And it's something, for example, my video didn't cover when I talked about Forza Horizon uh, uh, originally, but my original video on Forza Horizon 4, I think, actually did mention that you occasionally got like a really big lurching stutter that came from nowhere. Um, so yeah, that's a thing that can happen. So maybe that's one thing that, uh, that is possibly happening there. Uh, that's one thing in terms of user experience, Rich, that I think is really important. Like we got the graphs, we got the, uh, you know, the good sense of how the SOC performs, but in terms of like, okay, actually, if you want to get a stable 30 FPS experience, how do you do that? What does it look like? Is it possible? And uh, are the usual intrusive things there or not? Is there uh, intrusive loading stutter, which I hate? Is there intrusive um, improper frame pacing, which I also hate? Uh, you know, these are things that are very important, but current reviews uh, focused on their aspects. And I think we're going to have a different perspective there. Mm, yeah, I mean, uh, when I did that uh, coverage where I basically looked at a Vega iGPU, um, I think the big takeaway from it was just inconsistency in performance with integrated graphics solutions. Now, this could be very, very different. I'm not going to comment on that. But um, going back to this question about a VRR display, VRR is great if you've got level frame times. Um, you can have some uh, degree of variance, but you know, generally you want your frame time graph to be quite consistent. Whereas the thing that really puts me off iGPU gaming is that you know performance is all over the place and it really does need to be um, uh, sort of constrained in a way and certainly when we're talking about battery life here that's uh, that's actually a good thing so it's actually going to be the case I think that the 30 FPS mode will be um, of crucial importance to the, to the Steam Deck in many many scenarios and um, I suspect that there will be plenty of games that will run at 60 frames per second based on the, the Gamers Nexus benchmarks that I saw, but it's likely to be those older titles. I don't think people should be going in expecting Cyberpunk to be, <laughs> or Control to be running at locked 60, because, you know, it ain't going to happen. And if you aren't running at locked 60, and if you are hitting bottleneck after bottleneck, as we've seen on other iGPU solutions, then yes, there's you've got to have a limit in there. But yeah, interesting stuff. Um, I guess we've got a final question, Steam Deck related, from Paul Calabata, who asks this. Do you think the Steam Deck as a platform would benefit more from frequent yearly iterations or from sticking with a fixed hardware configuration for multiple years like a console? Alex? Uh, I don't think they're going to be changing the SoC anytime soon because it's expensive and all these other things. Uh, but I would like to see uh, yearly iterations that maybe tweak uh, size, tweak the screen, tweak user stuff, maybe introduce a higher end model uh, with things that are premium tier quality. Uh, so that I would like that. Nintendo approach, basically. Yeah, like, put why out not? the Steam Deck <laughs> OLED model. <laughs> sure, do it. 
Yeah, I guess that would work. But I think you're right. The actual fixed configuration isn't likely to change anytime soon. Uh, the economics wouldn't make sense otherwise. I mean, it you know, to create the Steam Deck, Valve would have put in, I don't know, hundreds of millions of dollars to make this thing happen. Uh, potentially billions once you, once you move into full production, right? But, you know, because you've got to make these things in, in volume and get them out before you actually see any any money back from the consumer. The R&D cost, it's a huge investment Valve has made here. And um, yeah, so I suspect that they would want to get a certain degree of life out of it. Um, but it also, I mean, if this thing does take off, I mean, at the moment, we are talking about a relatively low volume device. It's not as if you can walk into Best Buy and get a Steam Deck, even if there were no chip constraints, right? It's quite a low volume devi uh, device. So, you know, there are questions about whether having such a low spec PC in the market is actually going to be holding back games or, or simply demanding a higher level of scalability from them. Uh, because, you know, at best, you know, it would be fantastic if this was a portable PlayStation. But, you know, the, the amount of horsepower on tap is, is always going to have a certain limit. It's not going to compare to um, discrete GPUs. I think the way that it's working is simply that um, you should be talking about constrained frame rates and you should be um, factoring in the 720p, 800p side of things, which really does reduce the scope. But at the same time, I don't know, I can't wait to test out stuff like Flight Simulator and Cyberpunk on it just to see. I mean, those two games are super forward looking in terms of their hardware requirements. And is it going to run on it? I can't wait to find out. Last night, at the time of recording, Nintendo put out a Nintendo Direct, uh, pretty much yeah, 30 to 40 minutes of new Nintendo content. Um, I watched it this morning. Uh, John's seen it. Alex, not particularly interested. <laughs> I haven't seen it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, funny thing is, John, whenever a Nintendo Direct comes out, I look at Twitter the following morning and everyone's mad. Everyone's oh, crazy. Always. Everyone's upset. <laughs> always. And what about you? No, I was happy with it because I didn't, really? I didn't have unrealistic expectations. I don't know oh, okay. why people are develop these expectations, but it happens every single time, like you say. I mean, but there was nothing huge necessarily, but there was a, enough small things that excited me. I mean, the big one is, for me personally, is I'm really happy to see Klonoa return, even though it's essentially, you know, it's one and two. Uh, it's the Wii remake with a new widescreen enhanced version of two, which has never received a conversion anywhere else outside of PlayStation 2 and I love that series so much so what is uh, that kind of game like oh my god it's a it's an incredible platform series it's a it, it's a 2D platformer with 3D graphics and they it was known for using sense of scale really well like creating these massive environments you like hit a jump pad and you fly like way up in the air and it's just but it was a really great series great music from Namco uh it's like classic Namco so I'm really happy that, that that's back uh, the other big one that really surprised me a lot is uh, Live Alive, which I don't think you guys are familiar with this, but there was a Super Famicom RPG back in the 90s released by Squaresoft for Super Famicom, right? Uh, never translated to English, only in Japan. It was a very interesting game. I've play, played it on, on the actual original hardware. Uh, and then out of nowhere, they announced a full-on like remake of it using that 
sort of they I think they call it HD 2D design similar to Octopath Traveler and Triangle Strategy where it's like sort of pixel art looking characters and there's like 3D worlds with like a tilt shift camera with some nice depth of field and man it looks awesome like I they're putting a ton of work into that and I'm really excited to see that getting not only a remake but a proper western release for the first time so that's really neat uh another thing that was announced was Xenoblade Chronicles 3 which had been rumored for quite some time as being in development. That looks excellent, like a nice visual style that returns more to the original game and perhaps Xenoblade Cross rather than the super, uh, well, the look of 2, which was not bad, but a little different. So I'm excited to see that. Some weird ones, Alex. They announced Portal, the companion collection for Switch, which is Portal 1 and 2 on Switch, and they showed it running at 60 FPS, which was interesting, which... That seems feasible, given the hardware. Yeah, source. Um, sure, why not? So, yeah, like they're bringing <laughs> Portal to Switch. Why not? That's cool. Uh, also, the uh, this is probably the weirdest one of the night, where they announced <laughs> Star Wars The Force Unleashed for Switch. Yeah. Uh, like, what? <laughs> Wasn't it like a Wii port? I... 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 I don't know, I think. Because I looked at the visuals, and it's running at 60 FPS, but it didn't look like i remembered the original and i'm like, <laughs> like is this is this a port of the wii version <laughs> the yeah. wii? that so, little controller so i don't understand that one that one confused me uh they all but they did announce that no man's sky for switch which is nice to see it actually looks really good assuming it, it was running on the switch so, hardware. i mean it was 30 oh, okay. fps and pretty low res so probably uh but you know that game continues to kind of it's an impressive turnaround, obviously. What it is today is so different from what it launched as. Like it's insane, actually, to see. I'm quite, I'm quite interested to see that because um, No Man's Sky has kind of gradually morphed into this super demanding game. Yeah, it has, <laughs> which is really heavy so on we'll, the GPU. We'll have to see that. <laughs> uh, another one to mention. So I think people were disappointed by this, but I actually think it's cool. Is that so Mario Kart 8 is getting an expansion pack with like 48 new courses. 48 courses spread across like two years or a year um, until until the end of 2023, I think it was uh, said. It, it's a lot. So I think people were hoping for Mario Kart 9, but at this point, I don't, I feel like Mario Kart 9 is going to have to be something really different to actually make an impact because Mario Kart 8 is actually legitimately great. Like it's so good. I don't know what else you can do on this current sort of generation it's going to require a pretty significant change to, to be unique. So instead, they're like, well, we're just going to make Mario Kart 8 Super Deluxe instead of just Deluxe. And I think that's great. That's a, that's a lot of content in that game. Then it's going to be, in the end, like, I don't know, close, closing in on 100 tracks. And considering how detailed and interesting the tracks can be, that's kind of shocking. It was Nintendo being Nintendo. Right? There was a bunch of stuff that looks, looks really good for, the, you know, proper Nintendo, you know. Uh, Mario Strikers, that was looking quite nice. Uh, Splatoon 3 was looking, you know, really good. I, I bet that's going to be a really good game. Kirby was looking that really looks impressive. That amazing, yeah. That's going to be great. I'm excited for that. I don't get the madness. Maybe people were expecting uh, Switch Pro again. No, people were expecting <laughs> really Metroid know. Prime 4, and they right. were expecting Breath of the Wild 2. Breath of the Wild 2, you know, yes. Both of these, I mean, at the beginning they announced that this was going to be a direct focusing on like the next six months primarily, or like this first half of the year. 
those games are not coming in the first half of the year. There was zero chance of that. So, I mean, they set the expectations from the beginning. Like, that that was not going to be in there. And, it's, and it wasn't. So, that's fine. I actually half expect Prime 4, when it finally emerges, to become sort of the next game for whatever next generation Switch they produce. And then maybe be cross-gen. I don't know. We'll have to see. Interesting. Because, you know, they, they rebooted the whole project, right? They announced it developed it for a couple of years and then they changed developer and went back to retro studios and retro studios basically started from scratch. So, I mean, by the time retro studios took over, it had already been announced like two years ago. So the long development makes sense because usually you don't announce something that hasn't even started production. And that's basically what happened here. <laughs> so, um, I do want to quickly mention in the shame corner, uh, square Enix showed, Chrono Cross, the Radical Dreamers edition. Like, okay, it's cool that they're actually including Radical Dreamers, which was sort of like a visual novel prologue to it for Super Famicom that never had a Western release. That's neat. But Chrono Cross itself looked like the worst upscaling job I've ever seen. It was so hideously ugly. I think even you looked at this, Alex. I did. It's pretty bad. Um, It's like they ran it through the Super Eagle filter while also just increasing the polygon resolution so it doesn't even begin to match the backgrounds. And the performance looked weird, and everything was kind of garish and just awful. Like, the the style of visuals that that game goes for, it needs to be soft and, and, and clean, and they're going for this super sharp, ugly, upscaled look. Like, they would have been better just keeping the original visuals and using, like, a nice CRT filter. Way better. That would versus be way better. this, because this is just, it's not good. Uh, and I'll be curious to see what the, they they did mention a remastered soundtrack, and I don't know how you match perfection, but we'll see what they do there. But I think a lot of people are always surprised to learn that Chrono Cross uses uses sequenced music on PlayStation, so it's sample based. Uh, so it's not like CD music; it's not pre recorded digital audio. Uh, it's actually sequenced, so it's it just showcases what was possible on the PS One with the sound chip and how. Uh, well, that's a whole different topic. I love that stuff, but I don't love this port. So <laughs> it keeps happening, though, right, John? Square is well, no, so Final Fantasy stuff. The thing about know. Square Enix these days is there's the good Square Enix and then there's the bad Square Enix, and I don't you you can't predict it really, right? Like on one hand, they're like we're going to remake Live Alive and it's going to look amazing, and then they turn around and say, oh, but we're going to put Chrono Cross out again and it's going to be the worst thing ever. Uh, so I don't know, like you just don't know with their announcements how much effort's going to be poured into it, or or the type of effort poured into it. I guess it's it's strange. It's very hit or miss. But that's you know that's kind of the thoughts. I guess the last thing to mention is a side thing is that they announced they showed MLB the Show on on Switch, and the whole time I'm looking at that, I'm just thinking, I wonder how the developers at Sony felt when it was like, okay guys, now you got to make your engine work on the Switch, and they're just like. All right. (laughs) Fine. And uh, it it looks like the usual form, right? Strip it back, run it at 30. Yeah, exactly. They they definitely stripped it back. So, (laughs) so I don't know. I mean, for me, this, the, the direct was fine. Like I, I enjoyed what they showed by and large. Um, it was kind of exactly what I would have expected to be honest. Well, there was, um, there was a comment this week uh, that I saw reported that Nintendo believes that the Switch is at the midpoint in its life cycle. And uh, you look at this Direct, and that's pretty much, you know, confirmation of that, right? Um, there is an argument that the 
that the hardware is kind of uh, in need of, of, of a significant horsepower upgrade. People keep talking about the Switch Pro um, or the Super Switch or whatever. Um, but the point is that, you know, this was like 30 to 40 minutes of content and it was just Nintendo putting out some pretty decent games and uh, long may it continue. I, I don't think expectations for a new Switch actually thinking about it it's not the time to do it. The chip shortage is not going away anytime soon. And I they're feel... still selling tons of Switches. Yeah, they're still selling tons of Switches. I mean, I'm sure they just look at all the conditions and it makes zero sense to put out a more powerful platform right now. Like, it's the worst possible time to do it. So, just stick with what they have. They sold a ton of units. Not as many... They didn't sell as many Switches as Grand Theft Auto V units, but they still sold a lot. I mean, what else sells 160 million? I still don't know who the people are who are buying that, but whatever, uh, you know, different people strokes, buy, different People folks. playing GTA Online, I suspect. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, let's move on to the next topic. Just a bit of an end point to coverage from the last few directs where we've been talking about the Microsoft Activision oh, yes. acquisition. The big question has been, of course, what's going to happen to the multi-platform juggernauts like Call of Duty? And um, <laughs> last week... Uh, John described the Spencer ultimatum, uh, <laughs> which was basically, uh, you, you kind of um, interpreted a comment from Phil as being, um, hey, you know, we, we can put Call of Duty on PlayStation, but it's not a done deal um, beyond our legal agreements. And this week, Microsoft put out this bizarre blog, uh, which was like, I don't know, it was thousands of words long, but buried within it was uh, basically confirmation that beyond the legal agreements with Sony, um, Microsoft has pledged to continue to release Call of Duty on uh, PlayStation platforms. And uh, they also said that they're looking to make similar assurances to Nintendo that multi-platform games from Activision would continue to be released on the Switch. Uh, which would kind of make sense, right? Um, yeah, and I guess this kind of ties in with the Bungie story that we had last week, where Sony is going to continue to run um, uh, Destiny 2 and future Bungie titles on Xbox as well as PlayStation. So we've kind of got an end point on that now. And I think it is the case that these games are so, you know, colossally expensive to make that, um, you know, just depriving one you know the biggest console on the market for those games access to those titles is probably going to be a really bad business decision but i'm just going to say what i said last week which is that you know microsoft will still have the impact of that acquisition by having call of duty day one for game pass yeah that's you know that's it right that's what it's all about that's the big thing it's like well you can buy the playstation version for 70 bucks or you could get it on Game Pass, and that's that's kind of the business thing they're putting forward. I, I and you know that's probably going to have an impact. So, to me, it seems like Microsoft is now playing a different game where it's less about the console; it's just about well making money as always, but building building this you know up these studios, their brand, and just putting their stuff everywhere. They want to release everywhere they can, and they want to make that money. So it's not not so much the uh, the Spencer ultimatum as the Spencer supremacy. <laughs> exactly, if it's more, it's more Spencer supremacy now. I'd say yes. Right. If we sort of go to continue the born, 
Yes. <laughs> Association, so that's where we're at. Okay, good. I'm glad we've got that clarified. Uh, let's move on to the next topic. It looks like Google Stadia has is being reported to have deprioritized uh, the platform in favor of Google Stream, which is... From what I can tell, a kind of white label rendition of Stadia that any developer can tap into, um, which kind of seems, I, I don't quite know why this is news. It seemed to be the logical way forward for that business if you're not going to be bringing new games to Stadia to actually make that um, server technology, that streaming technology available to other people. And um, I don't know. I think from my perspective, the issue there compared to other systems is that you still need to make a Linux port, a Linux Vulkan port of your game. So you've still got to port it to Stadia, right? Um, I, that doesn't seem to have changed. I might be wrong. In which case, there's a lot of competing solutions out there. I mean, if I, I still think if NVIDIA white labeled GeForce Now, that's pretty much the best you're going to get in cloud streaming technology in terms of horsepower, in terms of features, in terms of image quality, in terms of latency. Um, but, you know, Google Stream, a.k.a. Stadio, is a thing. Um, any thoughts on this, John? <laughs> because you love streaming. I'm obviously not a fan of streaming, but I also don't, I don't want to kick a dog while he's down, right? You know, not that Google is down necessarily, but I feel bad for going after Stadia at this point, considering the the dire situation it's in. But I will say, though, that their technology was actually pretty good. And after doing that video with Tom on the Switch streaming situation, uh, it's pretty clear that perhaps their solution could be superior to things like that. And would it would make a lot of sense, knowing Google's history as more of a service provider than anything else, to actually get into that business of helping companies bring stuff to other devices as a streaming service um, rather than just trying to do their own unique platform. Because I think the platform side instantly means that, you know, you're doing all your spending through this Google store, you know, your account is connected to that. But by breaking it out now, it can be just a backbone for these other companies to utilize. And I assume they still get a lucrative deal out of that. Um, so it, it feels like the natural state of things for the Stadia technology, I'd say. But as you say, GeForce Now is still kind of the best in the business. Well, I guess this just uh, uh, signals the end of the idea of a Google Stadia exclusive that uses the platform to its fullest. Uh, like when we were talking about it back in the day, I was saying I don't like, like John, I, I don't like the the experience of playing a stream game but there's there was the idea that you could use the fact that everything is in the cloud you could create very interesting massively multiplayer experiences that way that don't necessarily need to be real time but could also be real time uh and well there's none of that that happened and came to fruition so i'm i'm a little sad that we didn't get to see something like that uh come about because the failure of, of uh, Stadia does basically it racks up another failure for streaming as a, as a platform. On Life died. PlayStation Now, it's kind of working, but you know how many people are actually using it as opposed to downloading the games? It's not quite clear. And obviously they're looking to integrate that into this uh, Spartacus uh, uh, upgrade. Uh, xCloud's not bad. Image quality isn't great at all on a desktop. Works okay on a phone. Um, but, you know, I, 
I'm struggling to think of too many people at the moment who are subscribing to Game Pass thinking, yes, I can stream my games. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I still think that the the concept of the streaming platform has yet to be proved out to be actually something that's that's worth doing. And this kind of, you know, kind of hammers home the point, right? Have any of you actually experienced a, a stream on any service that was completely stable in terms of frame rate because it feels like they've solved the input latency issue somewhat games are pretty responsive and the image quality can be pretty okay in most cases but every single time i've ever attempted to use any stream ever there's always just frame consistency problems that drive me nuts and it makes it unusable to me like i can't stand it it looks terrible in motion i mean geforce now i guess is the closest thing we've got to that but even that isn't perfect in my experience. And some of the other ones are just awful in this regard. I will say, John, that I have had good experiences with streaming platforms, right? But the, and uh, a kind of um, uh, improvement over the, the scenario that you're suggesting in that, you know, frame drops, hitches to the stream aren't really an issue. However, what it requires is a gigantic amount of bandwidth, right? So I think um, Stadia was requiring, you know, 60 megabits per second connection for 4K. And um, I was giving it like 350. And uh, that way you do kind of get that sort of consistency uh, for the most part. It's not perfect, but it's not really an issue anymore. However, as soon as anybody else starts using the same connection, all bets are off, right? That's the problem. That's the big issue here is that unless you've got a dedicated um, a connection just for that application, then you're going to run into problems. And I still haven't seen a system that addresses that um, in a way that's acceptable because, you know, Netflix and whatnot, YouTube, they work because they're buffering seconds in advance. So, you know, they can basically gloss over any of the, uh, the sort of um, issues you might face. But that's not the issue with gaming. So, you know, I still think that we're looking at massive infrastructure upgrades required to make this actually work properly for people consistently. Yeah, you can't have any interruption, essentially. And, and smoothing it out then would essentially kill the input latency. So it's like a, it's a battle there. And yeah, it's, it's still an issue. Crisis Remastered has received a new patch and it is also the final patch. Um, I've not uh, experienced this one, but you guys have. So, Alex. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm going to send Audi some footage of this, but I do have footage of the game running at launch day versus footage of it running right now. Exact same scene. It runs a lot better, as you're seeing here. And that's primarily, I would say, due to CPU. Uh, stuff because the game was always heavily CPU limited. You can make it more GPU limited for sure by pumping up the settings, but the thing that would probably get in the way first of all was the CPU. Uh, so that's what you have here. Um, uh, I think John can also attest to that very easily. Uh, but another thing that I want to talk about here is this is the final patch. Uh, all in all, I guess it would be good to say a little bit of my two cents about Crisis Remastered as a whole. I'm grateful that it exists. Uh, a lot more people now are playing the original Crisis, uh, my favorite game in the series, and I always wanted that. Uh, but at the end, there are still some issues, some naggling things that just, uh, if that's the word. Uh, some just, nag I don't know things. if that's even a word. Things. I just say it. There, just, there, were there are niggling things. But, niggling uh, things that maybe, just don't go so away. Na niggling things are Alex-specific things. Yeah, these are Alex. Naggle Alex. Okay. <laughs> 
Um, and, uh, you know, AI issues, do the pathfinding being different in the games. Uh, the way to fix this has always been to give the community the tools to make the game themselves uh, because they will do it for you for free. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, Crytek has yet to do that. Um, I, I really, really like the position where the game is in right now, but I feel like the last final patch should be like, also here, Sandbox Editor, have fun. Because my goodness, uh, the, all the things that we've ever had an issue with could always be fixed by the community and CryEngine Cry, Cry supports mods so well. It's so good at that, so why not? You had a lot of critiques of Crisis Remastered. There was a lot of stuff that was hacked out of the game uh, that didn't make it uh, for the Xbox 360 and PlayStation 3 versions, which didn't make their way back into the PC. Is that stuff kind of back in now? You know, like the volumetrics, like the uh, destruction? No, not really. So that's the that's like the core issue here is I don't know how fa uh, fixable some of those are with your sandbox, um, but like you know things like maybe adding in the clouds, probably actually uh, making sure all the volumetrics are in place. Yeah, that could be done. Make sure you know like all the particle effects are in place. That could all be done with the the, the mod tools. Uh, some of the other stuff like. Um, lower FPS vegetation for reasons at times that doesn't seem right. Like sometimes it's right, sometimes it isn't. Um, I don't think that's really fixable, unfortunately, even with mod tools. Yeah, I mean, I, I concur with Alex on that, but I do think, you know, overall it's pretty good. It's a good way to play Crisis, even though it's certainly not perfect still, uh, unfortunately. And that original 2007 version is still super demanding. So uh, this is now... The main thing here is that you get significantly better image quality, especially thanks to DLSS support, which is huge over the original Crisis. Um, you also get superior motion blur. Well, not completely. Some, some aspects of it, but... Um, and much faster performance. Like, uh, I immediately ran up to that... There's that point that overlooks the village in the second mission, which is usually really heavy, and I was at 74 frames per second using G-Sync, uh, in the can it run crisis mode, which is pretty darn heavy. And I was certainly not getting that before, <laughs> to say the least. And it's, it's pretty stable now. The only thing though is, so I've played that mission probably a hundred times now, just as an estimate over the years. Um, and I got very good at running through it, especially for benchmarking when I covered the console versions as well. And I had a perfect path through it every time. This time, the first time I loaded up Crisis Remastered with the new patch, I encountered things that actually were like, it almost made it turn into a horror game because they were so unexpected and bizarre. Like, right away you go through the woods, you've got your team there, they're talking, I always run ahead, jump in the Humvee, drive down the road, there's another group of enemies that drives up in a Humvee, you blow up the Humvee, you continue, so on. This time, though, that Humvee did not appear, and instead another target was there, and I was shooting at it. It didn't go down. Turns out it was a dude in a nanosuit, uh, an NPC, that, why was he there? Who was it? It wasn't, it wasn't your team, but it was just a nanosuit running mindlessly down the road. You couldn't kill it or interact with it in any way. It just kept running. So that confused me. And then a little bit later, I'm up in the woods overlooking that. I jumped down. And there's usually a patrol of, of Korean soldiers down there. This time, they were grouped together 
there was like 20 of them and they were strangely grouped in a way that I'd never seen before. And it was very, very strange. So that confused me. And then I get into the village and go into the school, open the door, trigger the cutscene, <laughs> and you come out. And normally what happens is these two tanks roll into town. I run up to the roof of the school. I blow them up with the RPGs up there. So I go up there and I'm like, where are the tanks? They appear on the map as a green dot, but they're not there. So I hop off the school, go looking around. The tanks are just sitting out in the field, like waiting to trigger, but they never actually triggered. And I just walk over. They don't attack you. You just can kind of explore around the tank. So I just blew them up at my leisure and then continued. And just these weird little things were so unnerving to me because I'm so familiar with that level that I, I walked, I was just like, what, what's going on here? I actually restarted the mission after that and it played fine the next time. But that one time loading it up, I don't know what was going on, but I'm sure Alex, who's also familiar with it, it was equally confused I, by... I, I, yeah, you told me when there was a nanosuit person there. I was thinking like, no, I, I don't even think there's any other nanosuits on the level the, other than your squad mates. Exactly. So, so weird. <laughs> it's know. kind of like the gaming equivalent of a supernatural occurrence. That's what it felt like. <laughs> That's what I mean. It and was, the paranormal it was has infiltrated your game. Maybe that's a, you know, uh, Easter egg planted by Shabbat all those years back. Oh, that's right. He triggered it. Yeah. It's the final Easter egg. <laughs> final Shabbat Easter egg. You yeah. see, uh, you know, we could have uh, monetized that as a, as a, as a news story. On we really should have. Yeah. The final crisis Easter egg. <laughs> okay, look, enough. Let's move on. Um, so we're going to go straight on to DF supporter program questions this week because we're already somewhat over time and uh, the content that we're working on we can't really discuss. Um, obviously, well, we can discuss it, Horizon Forbidden West, but you know we can't talk about it in depth yet. Uh, so let's go straight on to the questions. And uh, the first one is from <laughs> Grontal and it's a question specifically targeted to Alex Batalia. And uh, it says this, Alex, are you excited for Total War Warhammer 3? Do you think you'll ever do a Total War analysis video? You reading that reminded me how they missed an incredible opportunity for the game to be called Total Warhammer. I, I still don't know why they call it Total War Warhammer. Um, whatever. Yes, I'm excited for Total Warhammer 3. Um, I Total love the War, series. Total Warhammer 3. Total War, Warhammer 3, um, I'm, I'm very excited for it. Uh, do you think I'll ever do a Total War analysis video? I think I'm going to do a video on Warhammer 3. Uh, but in general, uh, I do like the idea of going back in time, looking at the Total War series because it has evolved quite a lot graphically. Uh, the series has always been known for, I think at the time of its release, if you like zoom in to the character models on the field, it's always really cool to see like, actually these are pretty high poly and high detailed character models for the time when they came out and the fact that you're like looking really far away from them. Uh, so I always thought that was really cool and it'd be really fun to maybe go back in time and do that, but I don't know when, if whenever that could occur, but yes, probably expect a Warhammer 3 video from me. Mm, I'm actually sort of just looking at the name of the game again and it's like, yeah, Total War is it's pretty final, isn't it? Your sequel should actually be even more total war. <laughs> even more totals. Totaler war. <laughs> yes. <laughs> An even more total war game experience. I love it. Uh, yes. So I think generally, uh, I mean, this is kind of like your heaven, right? RTS plus Warhammer. You're all about painting your miniatures, aren't you? <laughs> yes, I am. So to speak. <laughs> 
This is this is all this is all about me. I guess the next thing I'm gonna get excited about after this Warhammer wise is gonna be Space Marine, and then I don't know. There's a couple other games coming out. We'll see. Okay, next question. This one's from Jonathan Hayhurst. Uh, new quad core CPUs like the i3 1210 are outperforming older eight core CPUs like the 3700X. Will a fast quad core like an older Lake i3 last for the rest of the generation since it outperforms a similar 8 core to what is in the new consoles? Or will quad cores eventually run out of steam? Um, this is a bit of a difficult one because we haven't gone hands on with the i3 1210. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I don't know what you think, Alex, but um, typically what tends to happen at the beginning of a console generation is that lower spec PC parts can outperform what's in the console. But as the generation matures, um, stuff like core counts in a CPU actually comes to the fore far more uh, dramatically. I don't know what you make of this. Yeah, I mean, well, this is this is a hard one, though, because is, is this really a quad core? Is it actually eight threads? It's eight threads. Yeah, so yeah. it yeah. outperforms a 7700K yeah, significantly. I, I, yeah, which has, uh, yeah. So, I mean, if this person's saying, I don't think it outperforms a 3700X in every game. I don't recall that. I do know it can outperform it for sure, but I don't know if it is every game. Um, there's there's some very interesting bits about this here because you know Alder Lake is like super like it's single threaded performance is actually really really high and then you know you have the possibility to pair it with really awesome memory too some things you know that's something the 3700X just doesn't have but like Rich is saying like towards the end of a generation it's really hard to say I would love to track this over the next gen though uh, to see but also you just have to remember like Yes, quad cores run out of steam, but those were like the i5-2500Ks. They did not have eight threads. Something that did actually have eight threads has scaled much better over time, the i7s and stuff from that era. Uh, so maybe this is fine, but also I would expect engines to change to be more threaded and yeah. There's going to be games that the older i3s will outperform the 3700X um, because, you know, something like Far Cry, for example, which is so heavily reliant on single thread performance. And uh, Ryzen 3000 isn't exactly particularly impressive in terms of that particular application in games. So, you know, I'm kind of curious to see how this is going to pan out. Um, but it has been the case that. Um, Basically, the, the four-core, four-thread quad-core is dead, I would say, at the moment. I kind of can't imagine even Alder Lake would be able to uh, to sort that out. But the idea of having eight threads is kind of keeping the quad-core into contention. Um, the question is whether it will retain that kind of uh, level of performance as we go forth. And bearing in mind that, you know, the, the consoles are running effectively 16 threads, um, 14 of them. Um, present to developers in like a Series X. I just think sooner or later it is going to run out of steam. But in the here and now, this is like a really good processor, seemingly. Kind of curious to see whether those um, issues are, are there. I mean, what I noticed playing something like Red Dead Redemption 2 with a 7700K, which is 4-core 8-thread, is that the frame times were worse than an actual 6-core six 6-thread six CPU. Oh. I saw that also in Flight Sim, interestingly enough. Mm. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I still think that, you know, ideally you'd be looking for an i5 
six cores, twelve threads. That's just what I'm thinking. Yeah, but again, that's... it is. We, there is a certain level of ignorance here because we haven't got an i3 1210. I mean, Red Dead could run like a champ on it, for all I know. I'm really big on those six core, uh, twelve thread systems. Like, I do like the 3600. I do love the new i5s. So. That's kind of what I would want to recommend for someone who's worried about being. Uh, is it even that much more expensive? Is it really that much more expensive? I know the, the i3s, i3s are, are super cheap. Yeah, i3s yeah. super cheap. You know, it's like within that like yeah, impulse buy territory. But is it? Would it be just maybe more worth it to just grab an i5 in general? I don't know. The i5 would be my pick. Put it that way. Yeah, but it is. You know, I guess it, the bargain end of the market. The difference between say a hundred and a hundred and fifty dollars is quite pronounced. Whereas that $50 differential higher up the stack doesn't really mean much. But you just got to pour one out for the Q6600, though, guys. The days of the quad are over. I, we, I would love, I do have a Q6600. I know Rich does as well, too, I think. Um, but I would love to see that run some more modern games, at least at 30 FPS. Heck Probably yeah. can. Probably it probably could, you know. Yeah. Um, I mean, basically, the, the Q6600 is kind of equivalent to the eight cores in an old gen console. It's mm -hmm. kind of how crazy, how crazily bad those CPUs <laughs> were. So bad. <laughs> anyway, next question, Brian McIntosh. Over the past 25 years or so of 3D graphics, there have been super performing chips that simply beat all of their contemporary competitors by a wide margin. Voodoo 2, GeForce 2 GTS, Radeon 9700 Pro. He goes on. <laughs> are, are there any of these types of cards that made a particularly strong impression on you, John? I mean, obviously a lot of these did, but I would start with uh, the 3DFX Voodoo 1, honestly. Like that one more than any other made such a strong impression because it was just showing what I had never seen on a PC before at a surprisingly great level of performance. So that was that was a really awesome card. And then, you know, I, I continued to buy graphics cards along the way. Uh, but the next time I truly felt a sense of awe was when I got a 8800 GT, uh, the G80 card from NVIDIA. That's when I rebuilt in 2007 installed crisis on that thing and it was just like you know the rest is history it was unlike anything i'd ever seen before at the time and i love that card i think that i think that might actually be the greatest value in graphics card history in terms of what it offered performance wise for that price i don't think we've ever uh seen that again uh, for me, this is easy. John already mentioned it. It is probably the 8800 GT and before that, the 9700 Pro. Uh, you know, 9700 for being unlockable uh, performance. Uh, really great DX9 stuff. I guess its only problem was that it didn't scale so far into the future as, say, the 8800 GT. Uh, the 8800 GT is kind of an interesting thing because the 8800 GTX and actually technically the original 8800 GT are also like stupidly good GPUs in their own right, which uh, I think I want to when I get one, a 20, when I get it, an ATI 2900 XT which is not a good GPU. I want to do a, like, back in the day, let's look at DX10 uh, video, um, because that was such an exciting time. Uh, and the lead up to the launch of both those GPUs was so much fun. Uh, but, you know, the 8800 GT, it lasted, 
it lasted so long. It is like, you know, the day it comes out and you can still use it like 2013, 2014 for a lot of games, uh, actually, even if you wanted to try, if you really wanted to try, you really could. Uh, that's pretty rare. So uh, it's just such a legendary GPU, G92. The thing about that is it always, this always makes me think about the PS3 as a device that NVIDIA did the GPU for and like how cl like, I, I don't think it would have been feasible, but to have like G80 basically in a PS3, what that would have been. I want to assume that Sony probably had an idea that G80 was a thing, but their price and time frame and it was delayed price, once. Yeah, so... it already was delayed in the price. So like that's probably say. why it came out the way it did. Yeah. But man, yeah. that would have been such a game changer, I think, for, for that yeah. system. Um, well, my choice, I guess if you guys have got those ones covered, I'm going to go for the GTX 970 which um, monstered the competition. Uh, AMD had their Hawaii lines, uh, Hawaii GPUs 290, 290X, which were really hot and um, quite performant. But um, yeah, the reference designs in particular, I think, John, you've still got that 290X for AMD. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's not great. It's not great, um, no. The, thing, the reason why the, the, the 970, I think, is iconic is, first of all, um, it was relatively cheap um, in terms of price cutting versus the competition. It just, it was super cheap. And secondly, um, it's one of those rare cards uh, which you don't see anymore where if you overclocked it, it actually was faster than a reference 980. This just would not, this would just not happen in the current era. GPU segmentation was such that um, uh, you know, this was possible, you know, pretty much any Maxwell card uh, running on reference clocks, you could add 200 to 250 megahertz to the core and uh, and happy days. You've got like a massive increase in performance. Um, that doesn't seem to happen these days because, you know, quite rightly, NVIDIA AMD is saying, hey, if we've got this overhead, why don't we just give it to everyone? <laughs> which is kind of the way it should be. But, you know, the 970 was a card that didn't have that. And you could just tap into this extra performance. You got performance on par or better than a 980. And in turn, that meant that performance in a lot of applications, um, legacy ones or, you know, stuff that wasn't using async compute or a lot of memory actually ran on par or faster than a 1060. Um, which was the follow-up essentially so yeah that was um, that was that was a real sort of icon for me uh, that particular card also into again going back to its pricing you know the 1060 was about the same price as a 970 uh, pretty much so again that was you know really was sort of bringing home the value and the concepts that the 980 that was significantly more expensive than the 970 I mean here's the thing like of course you could overclock the 980 in the same way that you could overclock the 970 and it had didn't have the memory issues but you know the 970 was an iconic card in my opinion it, it was just like absolutely phenomenal for its time period it was a genuine game changer does it does it still show up in uh, steam hardware surveys there's a lot of them out there yeah yeah sure um i'm not sure it's in the top 10 anymore it might be i guess we could take a look at that but um it still does a job even now. I mean, not a particularly great job. VRAM. <laughs> VRAM and, um, you know, driver support isn't going to be so great on Maxwell cards these days. But, you know, it does still do a job. And for, for its time, it was uh, it was just a phenomenal 
uh, GPU. I'm sure there are other ones, you know, sort of price versus performance winners across the, the, the generations. But it seems to be the case now that um, to get a properly, you know, incredible uh, generation or leap like the 970, like the 8800 GT, you're actually having to spend a lot of money. Now, I would contend that the 3080 is an absolutely phenomenal product. But, you know, starting price, $699, you know, it's far cry from if you could. I mean, here's the thing, right? I mean, obviously things have gone really bad recently in terms of GPU availability. But in the run up to the 30 um, into the to the RTX 3000 launch, the price of the 2000 cards was dropping like a stone. Um, and uh, you could actually get uh, a, a pretty good bargain on the older cards, and there was availability of the uh, 3080 at launch. It's all when the mining boom kicked in that things went south. But yeah, I mean, it's, it seems to be that whatever happens whenever there's a new piece of technology, you stand a much better chance of getting hold of one if you're there early doors rather than trying to buy later. I mean, I had no problem whatsoever securing PlayStation 5 or Series X um, for launch through pre-orders, you know, and that's a completely different story. But yeah, iconic GPUs. And going, and again, you know, um, talking about iconic GPUs, um, John, your DF Retro on GeForce 256 uh, was very well received. And I think I'd love to see uh, follow-ups to that on some of the other icons. I'd love you know. that. That was that's super fun. I love 8800 GT has got to be the next one, surely. It's... I, I feel like there should be a stop at GeForce 3 or maybe, I don't know, something else. But 8800 GT is really important, of course. Uh, let's move on to the next question. Uh, Joe Kies, Keys. Why don't the new consoles use 16 times an isotropic filtering? Well, this is an age-old question, isn't it, John? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not... F no, but I, it's not as free as it seems. And, you know, there, there, there's still bottlenecks there that they have to consider. Um, and I think a lot of developers tend to do, you know, they find sort of an acceptable medium that's performant enough, doesn't put strain on the system, but still looks good. Uh, and I think just doing 16x across the board isn't as uh, simple as it seems. Alex, any thoughts? Because basically, texture filtering always gets pretty much ramped up to max on optimized settings, right? I don't think I've ever said don't use. I mean, if I have, then it was a mistake. I'm sorry. Um, uh, I guess in this case, yeah, John, like John said, it has uh, different performance considerations on consoles for sure. But I always think, even regardless of that fact, that they should turn it up. Not to 16. But 8X is, 8, 4 is, I don't like the way 4 looks at all. 8X, fine enough. I think on the on the new generation of consoles, this should be quite feasible. Uh, but with stuff like Switch, where memory bandwidth and other issues are still limitations, like we've seen it in action with like Shadow Man Remastered, where six, you can actually adjust it as you please, and 16X does have a performance cost. So, you know, that is definitely a consideration there. Uh, let's move on to the next question from CTG867. Do you think the next-gen consoles came too soon? We've got cross-gen games like Dying Light 2 requiring a choice between 60fps RT or above 1080p resolutions, which doesn't seem like an acceptable trade-off this early into the generation. 
Without a DLSS-like solution, is this what we should expect from next-gen GPU performance going forward, or could this situation improve, John? Oh, um, I don't think it is. I, the problem is when you're making these consoles, they start in development so early, and you kind of have to target this time frame release. If they if they allow features to creep in over time, uh, then you end up with something that never launches, right? And I don't think can see and. Right now, like you look at what AMD's lineup is right now, they don't have anything better for for ray tracing specifically. Like I don't think that we would have seen any massive change here at this point. There's always ways that they could improve things, I'm sure, but at what cost? I mean, they're already expensive enough, uh, and the pre previous generation had lasted long enough. I don't think um, it's so simple, though. Like, you can't just look at one game as a data point and say, like, oh, it runs like this, so that means everything is bad. Um, it's a much more nuanced kind of situation. You have to understand why things run the way they run. I think Dying Light 2 was really interesting because, you know, like Alex showed in his PC video, you could really kind of understand, like, where the bottlenecks were and that conceivably they could have made other choices uh, to solve some of those problems, like the resolution, for instance. Like, I think, I feel like we're pretty confident that 60 FPS could have been feasible at a higher resolution if they had made different settings choices, for instance. Uh, but, I mean, games are all about essentially tricking the player using fancy tricks and techniques, right? You want You want to find a way to achieve a certain visual solution or, like, presentation quality uh, using however methods you can that are fast enough. And so I think when you have first-party developers targeting a very specific style of visual quality, you'll be able to create something that maybe looks better to the eye uh, in the future and does impress. But, you know, maybe it's not doing something that's as heavy as some other prior game, even if, you know, at first glance it doesn't look as impressive. Uh, so, I, I mean, you know, it's it's an interesting topic for sure. I think the big loss, really, DLSS, I think, is the main thing that, that would have been great for consoles, but it's, it's an impossible situation. AMD does not have a DLSS-like solution right now. Uh, Intel's solution is not ready. Wouldn't have been in those consoles, necessarily. Um, and no, they're not using NVIDIA, so I don't know. I mean, I think the best chance for a DLSS on a console is going to be a new Switch still, since they do have that partnership with NVIDIA, and I suspect whenever it happens, if, you know, I'm sure it will at some point, DLSS is so perfect for a device like that. I think John said it all right. I mean, I just, you know, like, not every game's the same. Uh, don't be so hard on the consoles. Like, we know that running RT is, like, really expensive on AMD hardware, and the to get it up into like 60 fps territory with rt on requires a lot of depth you know like tricks and a lot of a lot of cuts that um may not always be completely obvious but they're totally there and so in the case of dying light 2 when they just kind of like are like actually this is running at full quality <laughs> that's like basically what they do this is just running at full quality so that's why you know the trade-off seems a little bit more intense there um but it's not going to be that way for every game and, you know, 1080p, everyone keeps hating on 1080p so much. I don't get what that's about. 1080p looks 
completely fine. It's just a matter about like uh, how the image is treated after the fact. In Dying Light 2, yes, it's 1080p, but you know they're not using TAAU to make that look better. It wouldn't be perfect, but it would look better I, with TAAU. I, I blame flat right? panels. <clears throat> yeah, the resolution's you know, perfectly panels. fine, but you know, yeah, it's flat yeah, panels. John, yeah, so I agree <laughs> with John there, and uh, so I mean. A lot of the games using RT are like around that 1080p range anyway. When you look at it pre, you know, pre-up sampling, pre-dynamic res shenanigans, you know, like, and on PC when you're running games with RT on and you're using DLSS, the pre-RT, the pre-DLSS res is also like 1080p for a lot of GPUs. Uh, so it's just a matter of what you're doing with the image. I think that's the key, Alex, and that's what's missing in games like Guardians of the Galaxy and Dying Light 2 is that they don't have a solution in place for dynamic resolution scaling. They're not doing any sort of like reconstruction tricks. We're just seeing that raw native image, uh, which I think people are becoming increasingly less used to, right? And the problem with that is that, you know, when you see the number, you, I, I think that they prioritized frame rate stability and they did so without one of these solutions in place and as a result that's how you end up with 1080p fair enough i'm going to answer uh, his question with um a version of his question which may have been asked in 2013 2014 do you think next gen came too soon we've got games like uh <laughs> battlefield 4 uh, running at 900p on a playstation 4 which doesn't seem like an acceptable trade-off this early into the generation. <laughs> is this what yeah. we should expect from next-gen GPU performance going forward, or could this situation improve? Well, historically, the situation improved. And, uh, you know, it's very early on in the generation. People aren't really fully au fait with uh, what these new GPUs could do. Um, so, yeah, and it, you know, in this case, it is cross-gen territory, which is something that, you know, games like battlefield were far less beholden to back in 2013 so you know basically give developers time to bed down into these new systems and get the most from them and at the same time you know we are seeing stuff like ratchet and clank which is doing phenomenal stuff with raid facing um early doors so i'm not concerned about the next generation coming too soon bringing back your comparison there i would say if you looked at xbox one in 2013 do you would you, would you ever think it could run something like Forza Horizon Five the way it does? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I think that's the point, yeah. right? <laughs> okay. Uh, next question: Do you think we'll see pro consoles again this generation? This is from Marcus Evert. On the one hand, the manufacturers would sell them, of course. On the other. Uh, and I think it would be much more difficult around this time. PS4 and Xbox One were already outdated hardware when they came out. <laughs> yeah, they were there. <laughs> But the current consoles are virtually top-notch technology, RDNA 2 and Zen 3. Uh, RDNA 2, Zen 3, yes. Uh, Alex? Rich has talked about this a lot, where I think the die-shrinking situation is not very good. So they have the system on the chips, the things that are in the Xbox Series X and PlayStation uh, 5, and shrinking them down, is, which is a way you would usually get like light versions of consoles, or the Xbox One S, um, but also use that die shrinking to make a die of similar size as you did before, but then release a pro console, PS4 Pro, Xbox One X. While that, we're reaching the limits of that for the next foreseeable future where it becomes price competitive to actually release that. Uh, so I think 
less this will be less of a thing but at the same time maybe there's a way that a, a newer version of the rdna2 could come out at the exact same size but with just updated uh like architecture like it could maybe have an ai uh acceleration part of it maybe but the same level of power elsewhere the, I think the main thing that drove the arrival of PS4 Pro and Xbox One X is that there was actually a sudden uplift in the number of 4K televisions being sold. 4K was a buzzword, people were getting 4K screens, uh, and the original consoles simply didn't support that. They couldn't produce image that looked great on such screens, and I think there was there was a case to actually build a m machine that could essentially like take that quality that you were getting on the, the machines already, but do it at a resolution that looks good on a 4K screen. I don't think we have that right now. Nobody cares about 8K. I think it's too much anyway, honestly, right now especially. There's no there's no reason to be worrying about 8K. Uh, what technology is there to drive that? There's also not VR. Like PS4 Pro, I think was driven by you know, extra support for PSVR, perhaps. Um, there's no external factor here. And when you combine that with the chip shortage situation, it doesn't look like it's going to improve anytime soon. And the die shrink issue and what Microsoft told us back when we first saw Series X, uh, I just don't see it as being that feasible or even making much sense right now. Yeah, just to, to sort of uh, re-emphasize that, basically the reason we got Series X and Series S at the same time is that they Microsoft did not envisage a time where they could make Series X cheaper. Um, you know, to, the kind of typical sort of, you know, $250 slim console. So they decided, hey, we'll make two consoles, we'll get those out at launch. And um, it's a strategy that seems to have paid off for them. Um, my perspective, John, you're entirely right. There was a there was a user side um, benefit for running those pro consoles, which was the arrival of 4K screens, and um, you know they could keep the same CPU. They could just upscale the size of the GPU, and you know they discovered that they could actually get a pretty decent 4K experience out of it. And you know it it did reasonably well, but neither the spoilers. Neither the Xbox One X or the um, PlayStation 4 Pro really made huge sales inroads compared to the base models. So the question is, what's in it for the user to have a Pro console and what's in it for the platform holder to invest the billions of dollars required to make one? Um, secondly, I guess this is taking the existing business model, right? But there is still this uh, concept that the consoles could shift out of the generational shift, uh, the generational pattern that we've got at the moment into more of a, what has previously been known as a mobile type situation where you would upgrade your device every, every few years. That would require quite a, a shift in consumer mentality and it would also require the cost of making the chips to go down so i wouldn't rule it out and i think the one thing that could make this possible is simply the fact that you know you we can integrate now ai upscaling techniques which means that you wouldn't need to double the size of the gpu anymore it would still need a conservative increase but ai cores could really make a big difference there but the question is who would it appeal to how much would it cost and how much of a, you know, the, the actual games that we're going to be playing won't be changing, right? 
it would still be resolution boosts and you know games generally tend to look pretty good on a 4k screen these days so yeah i don't really see it final question then <laughs> snorkel bandit asks us <laughs> um hey guys do any of you typically go in for collector's editions of games? If so, do you have any special edition or memorabilia you're particularly fond of? I'll go in straight away on this and say I don't really care. So I'm I'm ruling myself out of the discussion here. And but I am gonna to go to the man who does care, John. Well, so I I find that it depends on how the collector's edition is made. Like I'm a fan of, of ones that prioritize a tight, clean packaging using high quality materials it actually has information and like stuff to read and listen to and and interact with that that feels just high quality right like basically a premium package but a small premium package i don't like those collector's editions that come in those gigantic boxes there was one for like destroy all humans that is like the size of my desk and sold for like 500 bucks or something uh i see that and it's just that just takes up space plastic toys stuff like that like that is not interesting to me at all and so i find that when i do get a special edition it's usually for something that i'm really interested in or care about a lot and it's often more like uh japanese special editions because i feel like their packaging tends to be much more concise but super high quality and i i like that kind of stuff so uh although they do still put out some larger boxes like the uh the darius box set that Taito did recently which i picked up because audie and i are featured in there on the dvd which is cool yeah i think previously you've mentioned collector's editions of games that are essentially once a game has been fully patched and completed that's a yeah that's an even separate thing then and yeah i would love that complete editions are excellent where it's fully patched all the content in uh that that stuff is amazing so basically i do enjoy collector's editions as long as they're they show restraint and quality and an attention to detail but i don't like collector's editions that are huge space wasters so alex i'd like you to address snorkel bandits question please snorkel bandit um i i've been digital only on pc since 2010 that's basically my answer you know like gog like for me, my my collector's edition of a game is the GOG version. That's that's about it. Alex, <laughs> not very let's not pretend you haven't been getting back into physical PC games. Yeah, but those you know those are games that just don't exist digitally. I know. Like yeah, so like yeah, but those are games that just don't exist digitally. That's the difference. I do have one that I, I like that I just had handy here. This one's a little bit bigger, but this this beautiful big box version of System Shock. It's uh that they put out with night dive and limited run i thought this was a really uh a good night, one. it's like beautifully embossed like super high quality materials um it's good stuff i like i appreciate that and I, I like the rise of some pc publishers have been doing big box versions of of pc games again and i think that's great and mm -hmm. they often include the game on say like a usb stick now instead of like a disc which that's fine too because that's solid media so mm -hmm. it's great what can I say? I hope Snorkel Bandit has <laughs> had his question adequately answered there. And that's it. That's the end of our show. Please do uh, like, subscribe, share if you enjoyed the content. Ring the bell 
for, um, well, apparently, instant notifications. Nominally instant. Nominally, yeah. Uh, allegedly instant <laughs> notifications. DF Supporter Program, get involved. Join our amazing community. Ask some questions for DF Direct Weekly. Get the show days ahead of everyone else. It's awesome. Uh, but that's all from us for now. Thanks for watching. It's literally down here 